my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Our Black Gay Diaspora podcast. I am excited to be joined by Reverend Jade McCauley, a British Nigerian LGBTQ rights activist and ordained Anglican priest with the Church of England. He is also a speaker, author, and poet, and with the pronouns that include he, him, and mama. I love that. <laughs> mama Jede is the founder of the House of Rainbow, a non-governmental organization or NGO, which quotes, is fostering relationships and creating a safe community for Black, Asian, minority, LGBT, IQ plus individuals and allies. Throughout his career, Reverend Jide has been affiliated with organizations like Report Out, One Voice Network, and Mild May HIV Hospital. I will venture to say that he is committed to and passionate about moving the needle forward for LGBTIQ plus citizens to freely live and celebrate who we are. I look forward to learning more about his life and his works. Greetings and welcome, Reverend Jede. How are you? Thank you so much, Eric, for having me on your podcast. I'm excited about all of this, and I'm truly and honestly honored. Every time that my profile is announced, I'm incredibly honored, and I'm also at the same time amazed. What makes me humble is that 17 years ago, I started House of Rainbow, an organization to support the needs of Black LGBT persons reconciling faith and sexuality. As we say, you know, in the Black African movement, we say, count your blessings and name them one by one. When I look back in 17 years, I see that so many people have uh, benefited from the work of House of Rainbow one way or the other. But I still do not feel satisfied about the total outcome. I really want to do a lot more. I want to do 100 times more of what we're doing right now. I want to be able to respond to every need that comes my way, whether it be financial support, housing, you know, migration, but at the same time also helping people to lift up their spirit and, and know that God loves them just the way they are. Thank you for, for detailing that. I just want to say um, happy 25th anniversary on being ordained a priest, which I believe happened in 1998. You became a priest in 1998, and you started House of Rainbow a few years after that. What prompted your desire to start House of Rainbow? Yeah, thank you so much for that point and that question. I mean, in 1998, I was ordained in my father's ministry. It was actually two years after I came out as gay, separated and divorced from my ex-wife. And of course, my father and the ordination council did not do any kind of investigation or spiritual enlightenment with me at all. So I didn't really know what to do. I did try to bring up the issues of my sexuality with my dad, but I didn't find the right moment to do so because the environment was very hostile. I didn't think that my father understood human sexuality at that point. So I just kind of let it lie. When the ordination service took place, 
amongst all the candidates that were ordained, my father was very pleased with me. And I believe that the ordination council with my dad recognized my call to ministry, but they've not taken the time, you know, to do the psychotherapy and the spiritual analysis and some of the things that later have experienced in other denominations where I have been. At that point, I've not actually had a conversation with my dad about being gay or anything of that nature. So around about 2001, I was introduced to uh, a community church in London called the Metropolitan Community Church. At this church, gay people were fully welcomed in this ministry. And I was literally amazed. So I began to inquire, what is it like? What does the Bible say? What are the things that I need to know? And the more I go to this church, the more I learned about the love of God for me. Now, having been ordained at that point in about 2003, I did make inquiries, you know, with this new church about transferring my clergy credentials to their ministry. And they said yes. And that followed up with uh, a full scholarship for me to train both in practice and academically. It also brought me to the United States, the specific school of religion and also the City of Refuge. These are the two churches I was understanding more about fellowship and ministry and inclusion. And it didn't take me long before I started to think about my own journey in Nigeria, the LGBT persons there. I strongly believe that God called me uh, to say today, I want you to take the inclusive ministry to Nigeria in order to support the LGBT people on that journey of reconciling faith and sexuality. Let me put it to you this way, Eric. For me, it was a moment of incredible awakening. As a Nigerian, as an African, I've been taught in different ways to hate myself. But now is the time for me to unlearn all the bad theology, the mistranslation of scriptures, I mean, I will sit down in a class of liberation theology and queer theology, and the way the Bible is explained is completely different from the way that I understood it up to that point. I mean, a good example is, you know, creation story. You know, the creation story was made to be so heteronormative that queer people couldn't find ourselves in that story. But having learned in a liberation theology class, that God made all people, including Adam and Steve and Madame and Evelyn, it is liberating. And to have that understanding of God is incredible. That journey took me up to about 2005 in, in my learning and in the theology. In 2006, I moved to Nigeria from England. And I always describe it as the comfort of England. I moved to Nigeria because England was not hostile to me at any time at that point or in the later. But I think that the reality is that when we started House of Rainbow in Nigeria, we pushed a lot of buttons. We were creating safe spaces for queer people to just celebrate and love God. Right down to the music, to the praising, to the prayer, people felt included and they felt that this is a space for them. But it wasn't too long before we realized that Nigeria is not ready. The hostility, even when we say we come together to pray, they don't want us to pray. They don't want us to have access to God at all. Everyone, you know, has an access to God. The Bible says that 
you know, for all who believe in Jesus Christ. It didn't segregate. It didn't say if you're gay or if you're straight. Creating a safe space for worship was not enough. House of Rainbow became the human rights church in Nigeria. Not too long after we started, we had to respond to issues of uh, human rights abuse and arbitrary arrest. People were made homeless. Families were rejecting their queer children. And it didn't take long, you know, before, you know, we started to create spaces for a long weekend so that people can get away from the hostility of their own environment. Within two years, we have become extremely popular and it came to the knowledge of the government and indeed of the Anglican Church in Nigeria and one of the mainstream denominations that there is a church that is gay and is creating space for queer people. Of course, we were condemned for that. I think it's around about the summer of 2008 when CNN visited House of Rainbow and did a little sketch about our church. Unfortunately, at the end of 2008, you know, we ran into serious trouble in Nigeria. Our community was under threat of violence. I was forced to return to the UK uh, towards the end of the year. It took me about a year and a half to two years before I was able to reconvene House of Rainbow in England and say, look, we must continue this ministry. We must continue that work. When I celebrate my ordination to the Metropolitan Community Church, which is about 17, 18 years. And then I celebrate my ordination to the Church of England, which is about 10 years plus. I do not always forget to celebrate, you know, the full length of my ministry as an ordained minister, which is now 25 years plus. But I think that people don't always understand. Um, I have been ordained three times by three different denominations. The reality is that no one should have to be hopping about from one denomination to another to find acceptance, you know, to serve in, in God's ministry as a priest. Okay. And, and I often joke because uh, one of my mentors is a Methodist that if I should decline with the Anglican Church and go and be ordained by the Methodists, I'd probably break the Guinness Book of Record of the Most Ordained. You were saying earlier about like analysis, and I think it was therapy connected to when you become a minister or become ordained. Are you speaking specifically being LGBT or just in general that's something that all those who are called to ministry should, that should be part of the process? I have always known that I'm called by God to ministry. I think it's important for everyone to pursue you know, the religious ministry in spaces where they can be celebrated, they can be respected. My initial step towards ministry was with my father's ministry. My father's ministry is very conservative, teaches very different kind of theology. Being ordained into that ministry means that I found myself in very difficult places where I could not reconcile myself with my office of a minister. So it meant that about five years after my initial ordination, that I had to seek to address my understanding of my ministry with another denomination, which is the Metropolitan Community Church. The Metropolitan Community Church was very open and understanding of human sexuality, such that it felt both natural 
and convincing for me to follow the process of inclusive theology, building my faith as a gay man who loves God and who God loves as well. And that process took me from 2003 to 2005. My advice generally would be that if you feel called by God, the theological training is very important. We're like in the 21st century where there's a lot more access and information about which denomination or theological school can provide you with the right theological thoughts. And you have to know yourself as well, because when you have that conversation about your calling or your designment for ministry, a lot of things will come up. There are conversations around financial integrity. There are conversations about your psychological well-being, your mental health, your sexual behaviors, and so on and so forth. All of these things are part of the human understanding. And if you are going to ordain a person and you hardly know who they are, you're going to miss out on the true essence of their being. It was evident that I was divorced at the time of my ordination, and there were no questions around it. So I'm looking back and explaining these gaps. When I decided to train with the Metropolitan Community Church, for the first time, I went through a rigorous process of discernment. They needed to know if I'm strong enough, if I am courageous enough, if I understand the scriptures, because being a religious minister, you don't want to hurt other people. So it is very important that people have a better understanding of their own spiritual and religious upbringing. It's so important. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. How old were you when you knew that you were called to ministry? <laughs> oh my goodness, how old was I? I strongly believe I was probably about 13 years old. In Nigeria, we had what is called water baptism, like river baptism. We, I was baptized in the river. So we had a full picture and a beautiful imagery of uh, Jesus coming along to John the Baptist and being baptized in River Jordan. At age 13, I've always known. I've always um, kind of gravitated towards prayers. And as a young teenager, I was providing pastoral care for even married people. I was providing pastoral care for other young people my age, for adults. At that moment, I knew and I believed that my parents also recognized my gift in ministry. But like many African child, you know, the focus is always on getting an education. And I think my generation were the ones who, whose parents would have told them, you've got to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. My primary career and academic was to study law. So I did study law and I achieved that profession. Throughout my young adolescence, you know, I always been part of the church, part of leadership in the church, part of youth leadership in the church. You know, I have access a lot to provide sermons and things of that nature. I forgot to ask, what part of Nigeria are you from? Um, I'm from Lagos, Nigeria. I'm Yoruba. Being ordained in your studies, how was it growing up in Nigeria for you? I mean, growing up in Nigeria was no different to uh, anyone else's experience. I mean, my parents were working class. 
So we had a relatively comfortable life. My parents were separated and divorced, you know, from when I was very young. It wasn't extremely negative. I was born in London, but I was raised in Nigeria, probably from around about age three. So my understanding of Nigeria was much earlier on, you know, from when I started to understand who I am and, and you know, to my environment. So I've always understood that Nigeria with all its complexity, it's such a beautiful place. I love Nigeria. I haven't been back to Nigeria now for over 10 years. And it breaks my heart because the reason I have not been back to Nigeria is because of homophobia and, and because I probably do not trust a lot of people, you know, to provide the appropriate care or security that I need. I did my primary, secondary uh, education in Nigeria. I came to England where I continued with my second and my university education. You mentioned about some of the homophobia that is within religion, you know, we know globally, but specifically Nigeria. Have you had opportunities to speak with those who express their opinions publicly around that? I've had a public debate with people who object to homosexuality from religious perspective or even political perspective. None of them are Nigerians so far. The religious leaders in Uganda and some of the politicians in Uganda, I've had public debates with them through platforms like the BBC or indeed any other broadcasting platform. For me, it is important that religious leaders that are inclusive need to speak up, Where even if you're an ally, you need to speak up for the LGBT community. You know, the truth will always be the truth when it comes to queer people. When we remain silent, you know, we give permission to homophobic rhetorics to fester. It's not enough just to provide safe space for queer people. We need to speak out for LGBT people in all parts of society. I've had opportunities to speak with religious leaders who have changed their mind. They are working within very hostile denominations that doesn't allow them to peacefully respond to many things publicly. And there are a number as well that are worried that, you know, their livelihood or their income will be affected should they speak out publicly about LGBT persons. So I've been part of several panels globally where I've had the opportunity to address the impact of society's rejection of LGBT persons, especially when we look at the impact within the health service. A lot of LGBT people cannot go to the clinic or the hospitals to get appropriate treatment because of the fear of homophobia. And um, even though in many countries there are laws against discrimination in the workplace, when it comes to LGBT persons, it's almost as if it's difficult to get any form of justice. I do know that in places like Nigeria, if, you, if people know that you're gay, or perceived to be gay, you'll be sidelined with promotion, you'll be sidelined with opportunities. People from Uganda told me that they didn't get a job or a promotion because people said that they were gay, so they gave the job to somebody else. A lesbian woman did not get a job because she was not married to a man. There are priests within the Church of Nigeria, Uganda, who have been forced to marry the opposite sex in order to keep
keep their ordination. And that to me is already a, a different level of trauma for those people. Uh, this month of September is Suicide Awareness Month. Just hearing those stories is quite painful of people that have taken their own lives. And I think that's important that we ensure that religious leaders and the religious community have the right rhetoric to address human sexuality. Otherwise, people will be pushed, will be forced, you know, to harm themselves. And if we really want to do God's work, we need to make sure that um, there are safe spaces for queer people to be able to live out their faith and understand that God loved them just the way they are. You know, I've been following you since the beginning of starting this podcast. I was made aware of you early on. And I can say that one of the things that I appreciate for how you are public you know, on social media is you don't just talk about our orientation, which in some ways can be still sanitized. The straight community can talk about attractions and even like dance publicly without really being ostracized in the same ways that we can. But I like the way that you do that online and you share that. And I appreciate that because you know, I think it's a lifelong thing still working on. It's okay to express that part of myself. So I appreciate that you do that publicly. I thank you so much. And, and I think that's one of the things. Even my father, who really objects to my sexuality, he's actually said things like, Judy is really persistent. Once I know my truth and I believe in it, I'm very, very persistent in pursuing it. And I'm also willingly ready to share with others a good example is my HIV diagnosis. Even though I did not come out immediately after my diagnosis to talk about my HIV status. In fact, I was literally nowhere in life, you know, even at that point. It was after my HIV diagnosis that I started House of Rainbow. People will feel that uh, an HIV diagnosis could have been a reason for someone to sink, push them to the very edge. For me, it really raised my consciousness about doing what is right, literally doing everything so that I can live my life the best that I can. And in doing so, I've also been able to help others as well, because there is a very powerful and dangerous and harmful rhetoric from the religious communities and indeed from the black community that HIV is the punishment for homosexuality. It is important to let people know that an HIV diagnosis does not define them, nor does it define their sexual orientation or gender identity, none at all. It is important to know that God is not punishing anyone, let alone the gay community with HIV for being who they are. HIV we know is a virus, and we know today that you know if you're on an effective medication, you cannot pass on the virus. It is called U equals U, you know, undetectable equals untransmittable. I have been diagnosed with HIV and I've been living with it now for 20 years. I'm doing well. My health is in one of the best places I can ever imagine. Part of that reality is also the persistency of that message. And be able to tell people that, you know, if you find yourself in this situation, it's okay. There is support. So I'm always putting it out that there is support for everybody that needs that support. A lot of the work at House of Rainbow, like I said earlier on, is not just creating space for worship, 
but also creating a space where people who are living with HIV can also be part of a community, part of a peer support community. You also use your platforms to talk about Black gay history. And for those of us outside of Nigeria or the UK, can you share some Black LGBTIQ persons that we should know about? You know, honestly, um, it's not something that I've done in a structured way. When it comes to Black queer history, there's literally none in the UK. We don't talk about it. And especially since October in the UK is Black History Month. We hear a lot about the contributions of Black people in the UK from America, but they were literally heterosexual people. So it got to a point where I started to talk about the contribution of Black queer people during Black History Month. And it really created a lot of trouble because a lot of people and communities don't want to hear about the contributions of Black queer folks. And that was pretty challenging for me. I remember doing a program in several institutions where I went to talk about the contributions of Black queer people. A few years ago, I think I did something online. It was probably around about during lockdown where I was talking about the contributions of Black queer Africans. We're talking about people like Kasha Jacqueline from Uganda, Frank Mugisha, historically Dari Odumuye from Nigeria, and several others, you know. And also historically, there was a lesbian or bisexual queen from Angola from the 17th, 18th century. So there are so many things like that. And also giving people a little bit of knowledge of the history of homosexuality before colonialism and the missionaries. It's something that I like to do and develop and maybe bring it forward so that people will understand that Black people have always had queerness in our own structures as well, in our own cultural identity. And it's not something that, as we've been told, that is a Western behavior. If we look at the laws that were imposed, the colonial laws that are imposed on the former colonies to punish homosexuality, why are we punishing something if it already exists? Why was the decision to punish it? Yeah. You know, and if we're punishing homosexuality, we know that it was accepted and it wasn't something that requires punishment. And when you now look at the flip side of it now, countries around the world are apologizing for what they did to gay people. They're apologizing for what they did to queer individuals. And I'm, I'm hoping that one day Africa and the West Indies and South America and anywhere around the global side will wake up and apologize to the way that they've treated queer people over the centuries. Without queer people, there'll be no church. There'll be no celebration of music in the church. And that is why I'm very, very passionate about the work that I do, especially as being a black gay man and also being a priest. It is important for us to talk and highlight, you know, the importance of queer people within the church. Diving a little bit into religion, scripture, and sexuality, it is important to know for anyone listening that the idea of homosexuality in the Bible is because people mistranslate the scriptures. You know, I've always maintained that no one has the monopoly to the presence of God. For me, I mean, we are here today 
you know, to unlearn and to relearn and to learn new things about humanity and also about God. And of course, queer people need to understand that they also have a place, a special and unique place within their religious communities. And I'm very proud of the work that we do, that I'm doing at House of Rainbow. Last month in August, we introduced in London the Inclusive Interfaith Chaplains. Queer people of faith within the Abrahamic faith and any other faith community will be able to know that there is support for them. They'll be able to receive what I would describe as culturally sensitive, traditionally appropriate pastoral care. As a Black African, I never knew, even up to now, I never knew anyone who is Black African and gay and a religious leader. But I'm very grateful because now there are many people, even in Africa, that are also developing you know, their own understanding of their own call to ministry. And I'm delighted that I will be one of the leaders that will be supporting those disciples. I would include Black Americans in that too, <laughs> as far as needing to be um, enlightened. I did see the BBC 2019 series, Am I Too, was it Am I Too Gay for God? That's so right, hearing you yeah. uh, detail that again. And then the interfaith, when we initially connected, if I remember correctly, you were organizing something for the recent UK Black Pride around that. Yes, um, I was. I've always been having conversations with the organizers of UK Black Pride about establishing an inclusive interfaith chaplaincy. For me, it is extremely important that we have that space so that queer people can know that there are spaces for them to go to. This year, it was part of the collaboration with other organizations. And then, of course, the focus was more out of House of Rainbow's deliveries. But in future years, my hope is that the inclusive interfaith chaplaincy will be able to stand alone so that we can get more people to participate or even approach that particular chaplaincy. And we don't want it to be a chaplaincy that provides services once a year. We want it to also begin to provide additional support throughout the year. We want to take it to many places. For example, there's a need to take it to the schools, the universities. You know, we want to have opportunity to create spaces for prayers, spaces for conversation, going into communities, supporting parents and allies and religious leaders. It ties up with a lot of my work as well because between 2015 and 2019, I was traveling along Southern Africa where we were doing a lot of work around dialogue and conversations on human sexuality, reconciling faith and sexuality in particular. And we have worked with community-based organizations with LGBT individuals, with politicians, religious leaders, where we had the opportunity to address the misconception, you know, of religious teachings and the LGBT persons. And it's also important that LGBT people are able to affirm themselves and understand that God loves them just the way they are. It's important for parents to know that LGBT children are a gift from God. You have a responsibility for your LGBT children dehumanizing them and making their life miserable is not parenting. LGBT children also suffer sexual abuse. 
we don't want to talk about the sexual abuse that LGBT children have suffered. Often we blame the sexual abuse for causing to turning them to be LGBT persons. Young heterosexual people that are sexually abused, we do not blame the abuse on their heterosexuality. I'm not saying that abuse is right, but we need to be able to support people so that they can overcome the abuse so that they can be themselves. Too often we've heard, you know, it was this uncle or that auntie that turned me gay. No, if you are sending the loving individual, it is part of who you are. What we all need to work on is to minimize the abuse or eradicate the abuse, you know, of people generally, regardless of whether they're children or adults or vulnerable young people or vulnerable adults. We need to work towards how we protect people. And even sexual abuse has been sometimes contained within religious spaces. We say to queer people that we are going to beat the homosexuality out of you. And too often within that, we are carrying out a physical abuse with the hope that they will beat out the spirit of homosexuality. They will beat out the demonic spirit of homosexuality. None of those things work. It left me psychologically abused. It left me with physical trauma. And of course, the emotional abuse is also there. There are sermons to spread homophobia in the name of teaching the people. It is just so wrong. If an LGBT person, child or adult, cannot find safety in the comfort of their home and family, they cannot find it across town. They will always be in danger. I mean, the best place we can find love and protection is at home with our own families. I know so many people, when you hear the stories of, of queer people who have survived abuse, they had to do ridiculous things in order to keep a roof over their head. That is painful to hear, especially when I'm doing a lot of my pastoral care work. I hear a lot of stories of queer people, what they've been through. We have many examples of human trafficking and sexual exploitation because people are fleeing from the homophobia at home. Then they land into very serious and complicated situations. Where are the leaders of the church when our queer people are running into danger? A lot of the things that you detail around neglect and, and emotional abuse, I could still say it's something apart from me, even though it's not. It is something that I'm absorbing and that I have to find ways to heal from. So, uh, yeah, it's just a reminder to me that I still need to work on admitting, like, this is not good for my psychological or emotional well-being. It's something that I was totally unaware for myself until I started to do a lot of the work as well, in terms of pastoral care. The principle of these abuses became a little more apparent. And of course, in social work, we're looking at preventing and protecting children from physical, emotional neglect and sexual abuses, right? But we then forget that those same abuses take place under the umbrella of spirituality and religion. The physical abuse in the name of God, it is still physical abuse. The emotional abuse in the name of God is still emotional abuse. With my organization, I'm campaigning fiercely that the United Kingdom make laws to ban conversion therapy immediately. 
There is nothing to change for queer people. We need to let queer people live their lives the way that we've allowed heterosexual people to live their lives. There's just too much pressure on a queer person, especially young queer people who are trying to determine their own lives and their own future. You know, they do not have the wall of security, the wall of love around them. And we need to find a way to break that circle. About two years ago, we started to look into another details of work at House of Rainbow. We were looking at the impact of human trafficking on the grounds of sexual orientation and gender identity. Because we we're hearing stories, but we have no data. Queer people are being trafficked from around the world in order to satisfy the insatiable market of exploitation. It breaks your heart. A lot of the cases for migration is because people are afraid of what their family will do to them, what the society will do to them, what the homophobic laws will do to them. It's just so wrong. And that is why I will continue to campaign, you know, within my capacity that we have governments decriminalize and decolonize homosexuality in their countries. I would say you're a healer, definitely somebody who enlightens but I wanted to ask you, I get the sense that this is coming from your own well, but who also fills that well? Like who inspires and enlightens you? Well, <laughs> let me start with Jesus. My goodness me. Jesus enlightened me and Jesus just gave me all the skills that I need. But the reality also sets in. Bishop Yvette Flander the prelate bishop and the founder of City of Refuge and the Fellowship of Family Ministries has been a, a huge impact on my ministry. She's somebody that you can watch. She's somebody that you can emulate. And also, Reverend Elder Troy D. Perry, the founder of the Universal Fellowship of Metropolitan Community Churches has been an incredible impact in my life. When I joined the MCC church, his ministry is so profound that I saw myself in him. I saw a lot of the things that he was doing as the things that I would want to do, that I'm now doing. And he really inspired me a lot. And I want to thank those two people for their ministry. The other person that has also inspired me incredibly is Harvey Milk. Politically, Harvey Milk made a huge change for LGBT persons. And of course, you know, I cannot leave out others like Bea Ruskin. These are incredible human beings that I'm beginning to learn about now. I look at all these people and I see uh, the work that they do. And, and I see how important it is that their legacy continues to live on. But I think it's so important, you know, that we have the understanding of those who have really created the platform for us to learn more about human sexuality, politically and also within faith spaces. I'm very grateful that you, you say, Jude, you're a healer. Someone has once called me a miracle maker, even though I leave the miracle maker to Jesus. But it's also important to identify and accept by virtue of the work we do, we are miracle workers, we are healing people, we are allowing people to find a space to be themselves.
for probably about nearly two years now, we have uh, a virtual program on Clubhouse at 7 a.m. UK time. People join from around the world. Many people look forward to coming to that space, Many because we share the inclusive gospel. We use the place for prayer and healing and, and miracles so that people can hear that it's okay to be queer and it's okay to love the Lord. But I think that the other testament for me, or uh, incredible testimony, is that it's been 17 years since we started House of Rainbow. House of Rainbow has been through a lot of trials, but we're still standing. It's been 25 years since I've been ordained into ministry, and I'm still going, and I'm going strong. And I want to thank God for that. So I'm showing that it is possible to love God just the way you are. And I'm grateful for the work that we're doing. The humanity, that's what I get from what you're doing is you're infusing the humanity because I'll say for myself sometimes, I see religious leaders, I do know they're human, but there's a part of it where it feels like I can't approach that, but I get from you that you're approachable and that you, because you're sharing your human side, that um, it's easier to, to heal or to, to help. Nothing must be extremely emotional when I see family reject their own. It is something that has happened to me. And, and I always celebrate the love of my mother. But unfortunately, my father's love descended into homophobia. And it's rather unfortunate because we still have not been able to build or reconnect I get enough homophobia from people that are not family. I don't need it from family. So I no longer wrestle with that. Family is supposed to be your rock when it comes to anything. If your family is behind you, you can do anything. But having said that, I don't want to leave this moment with a very sad, sad kind of a narrative. But it's also important for each and every one of us maybe in addition to our own biological family, find our family of choice. Because our family of choice will celebrate us regardless. And it's just as good as your own DNA family. I am surrounded by people that love me, that care for me. I don't think that I would be in ministry today if not for the people that surrounded me and said today, you can do this. I got a recommendation recently to join the advisory group at the United Nations addressing HIV and human rights on a global basis. This comes from someone who is my mentor for years. And of course, in that work as well, I'm able to bring together you know, so many things that I'm doing, particularly when it comes to people, people that are hurting you know, if we have the right support, we will be able to excel beyond our own imagination. And that for me is really important. And I'm hoping that people that listen to this conversation will not give up, but find their family of choice, even when their own family malign or rejects them. Find those that will celebrate you. And if you can't find them, get in touch with me. I will be your family. Wow. <laughs> Thank you for that. 
I usually end, well, do you have any final thoughts or insight? But I think you just gave us that. So I thank you for that. <laughs> Needless to say, I might just have one. Let me just throw it out there. And then if you yeah, yeah, make the cut. Um, yeah. My insight is, is always to, to say to LGBT people, our families and friends, that God loves us just the way we are. We're not a mistake. And we should never, never apologize. I love telling people that G-A-Y means God adores you. G-A-Y means God accepts you. Mm. God anoints you. If you are seeking the pathway to ministry, God anoints you. Many of us live through, you know, life of fear. We have the imposter syndrome. But remember that God accomplished you. Even when it doesn't feel like that, embody that and, and find their own mantra to live by that love of God. Mm, I like that. Where can we engage with you online? You can find me on all of major social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. The handle is House of Rainbow. We also have a, a dedicated website for our organization. It's houseofrainbow.org. For me personally, you can look out for G.D. McCauley and all of those platforms as well. But I always say, please be careful because there are so many duplicated and, and fraudulent accounts that have been created in my name. But nonetheless, you know, um, if you find my platform, it's filled with love, lots of love and information. And then I hope that we make the connection sometime soon. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends, too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.